What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week we started our section in Romans dealing with relationships with other believers and in this section Paul shares with us 15 different practical ways in which to show love towards other believers in the body of Christ and since that's so many ways to look at all at once uh, we broke that up in two and last week we started with the first seven practical ways we should love other believers love without hypocrisy love by abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good love by being kindly affectionate with brotherly love uh, honoring through giving preference to one another being diligent being fervent in spirit and love by serving the Lord. And so those are the first seven challenges of how we can practically love. And this morning, we're going to continue this list that Paul gives in these verses of loving other believers and look at the final eight challenges of practical ways that we can love one another. Starting in verse 12 through 16, we'll see the rest of the list. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. So now we come to the eighth practical way that we can demonstrate love to other believers, and that is to rejoice in hope. You know, one of the biggest motivators, and with anything that you do, especially love, you know, when you're commanded to do something, you want to have uh, something that motivates you. Why am I going to do this? Why am I going to continue in this? And hope is one of those motivators for us. In 1 Corinthians 13:7, we're told that love hopes all things. The Greek word translated hope is a confident expectation of coming good. It's not to wish something that you don't think is ever going to happen. It's a confidence. It's an expectation of good that is coming to you in the future. Now, the reason that you and I have great hope as Christians is because of the love that God has displayed upon us that gives us something to hope for. In John 3.16, we're told that God loved For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our hope, our confident expectation in coming good is first that we're not going to perish in hell and second that we're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. And why is that possible? Why is that something that we have now available to us? Because of the love of God, that He demonstrated His love by sending His Son to die on the cross for our sin. So our hope 
is based on the love of God for us, but it's also the motivator for us, the the reason why we should love. Since God loved us so much, and since we have the hope of eternity with Him, that should impact and motivate us in the present life that we live to demonstrate love not only to God, but also to one another. You know, when we don't have hope, there's nothing to look forward to. There's no reward coming. There, there's nothing in the future. It, it leads to despair. It leads to a complete change in the way in which we live and conduct ourselves. You know, the, during the Vietnam War, an American prisoner, he was captured by the Vietnamese and, and he was put into this camp. And, you know, the, the head of the camp told this prisoner that, you know what, if you behave, if you do what you're told, if you, you know, uh, work hard, then ultimately we are going to free you after some time. And so this American soldier believed that. And because he had this hope of being set free, this hope of, you know what, if I just work hard, if I just do what I'm told, if I don't cause any problems here, then eventually I'm going to get out of this place. And so he did that. He was a hard worker. He did what he was told. He was a model prisoner until he was there for four years and found the harsh reality that they've been lying to him. That there was never going to be a time where he was going to be released. That he was never going to be set free. That this was it for him unless someone came and rescued him. And so he went from having hope to having no hope. And when he got to that place of having no hope, he decided, you know what? I don't want to eat anymore. He laid in his bed and he died in a matter of weeks. You know, there's a reality that when we have hope, it impacts our future The hope of the future impacts the present. Whether we have it or whether we don't is a huge motivation. It's a huge thing about how we live our life. You know, as Christians, we have this wonderful thing that we're looking forward to, this wonderful hope that should definitely impact the way in which we live now. We're going to be going to a place where there's no more tears, where there's no more sadness, where there's no more death, where there's no more heartache, where there's no more suffering. And that reality of where we're headed should impact, should should motivate us. I mean, if a a prisoner thinking he's going to be set free can, can live a certain way, surely us, knowing where we're headed in the future, can live for Christ in the present. Alexander McLaren said this, Brethren, I believe that one great source of the weakness of average Christianity amongst us today is the dimness into which so many of us have let the hope of the glory of God pass in our hearts. So I beg you to lay to heart this commandment and to rejoice in hope. And so the eighth practical way to to love other believers is to rejoice in hope. Let the hope of the future of heaven motivate you to love here on earth. The ninth practical way that Paul challenges us to love other believers is to be patient in tribulation. The Greek word here translated patient means uh, to remain under, to endure, not to flee. You know, it has the mindset of this pressure, this difficulty that's upon you. And instead of trying to get away from it, instead of trying to run from it, you're willing to remain under it. You're willing to suffer through it uh, and you know, to suffer long within it. Being patient with people, being patient in difficult situations, that is a great way to demonstrate love. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 7, we're told that love is patient. 
And we're also told that love bears all things. When you love someone, you will be patient with them. You will be willing to suffer long with them. You know, there are many people who are very difficult to be around. There are people who cause tribulation and suffering and, and difficulty in your life. And the practical challenge for us is that we would love them by remaining patient with them. To remain with them, to endure with them, to not flee from them, even though they're difficult, even though they're hard, even though there are sometimes a problem within your life, that instead of saying, you know what, you're too difficult, you're too much of an issue, you're too much of a problem, I'm just going to get rid of you. No, love says, I'm going to suffer with you. I'm going to suffer long. I'm going to be patient and continue, even though you are often a difficult person to be around. You see, the love that Paul is challenging us to show is not a love based on feelings. It's a love based on choice. You know, so often when we think of love, that's the kind of love that we think of, this love based on feelings, this romantic love. There's so many loves that we have that's really just based on a feeling of love towards an individual, based on the attraction, based on, you know, things in common, based on all sorts of things. But, you know, if that's all our love is, is based on feelings, it's not the, the deepest type of love. A much deeper love is a love that's based on choice, that even though I don't feel it, I'm still going to do it. That even though in this moment you aren't doing anything towards me that makes me feel love towards you, but yet I'm going to make a choice to love you anyway. I'm going to make a choice to be patient with you, to endure with you, even though I don't feel like it, even though there's nothing you're doing to make me feel like it. I'm going to choose to love because that's what I'm commanded by God to do. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you and endure through this. Charles Spurgeon said this, I would, my brothers and sisters, that we would all imitate the pearl oyster. A hurtful particle intrudes into its shell, and this vessel engraves it. It cannot eject the evil, and what does it do but cover it with a precious substance extracted out of its own life, by which it turns the intruder into a pearl? Oh, that we could do so with the provocations we receive from our fellow Christians, that the pearls of patience, gentleness, long-suffering, and forgiveness might be bred within us by that which has harmed us. You know, I love this picture that Charles Spurgeon paints here of the oyster. When, when people are difficult, when they're irritating, don't try to get rid of them. Instead, cover them with love. And watch what happens. Watch what happens in you. Watch what happens in them when you're willing to say, you know what? Yes, you're an irritant right now in my life. But instead of just getting rid of you, I'm going to love you. I'm going to be patient with you. I'm going to stick with you. And I'm going to see what God does in that in me and in you. And watch the pearls that come as we continue to love even when it's difficult. The tenth practical way that Paul challenges us to love other believers is to continue steadfastly in prayer. This Greek word that's translated continue steadfastly means continue all the time in something, to be steadfastly attentive. So Paul's challenge to us is that prayer would be something that we would continue all the time in, that we would be attentive to how important it is not only for ourselves, but also for other people. 
you know, we have a, a challenge in the Word of God that's one of those challenges where you read it and you're just kind of like, how could I ever do this? But 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. You know, the Word of God reveals to us that God wants us to be those who pray all the time. That we wouldn't just see this wonderful privilege and then take advantage of it here and now, every now and then, maybe, you know, something super difficult in my life. Well, then I'll finally pray. But realize the privilege of it. Realize the power that's with it and take advantage of it all the time. You know, I think how regularly you pray for someone is a good demonstration of how much you love them. I read a statistic and it was showing that within Christianity, the person that most people pray for is themselves. And it makes sense because the person that most people love the most is themselves. And following ourselves, you have then family members and friends, and then the far last is the enemies that we rarely ever pray for. But, you know, we, we see this reality that our prayer often demonstrates what we love. When we pray all the time only for ourselves, it's a good you know, reality that we love ourselves a lot and we're not loving other people the way we should. And so when we pray for people, it's a great demonstration of the fact that we love them. You know, one of the things I really appreciate about our midweek service is, you know, at the end when we have this time of prayer, but before that, you know, before we even take prayer requests, we have a time just to praise the Lord for the answers to prayer. And it's always encouraging as we're praying to see, wow, look at what God's done. I mean, look at the power of prayer. Look at how people have been healed. Look at how people have gotten jobs. Look at how people have gotten the things that they've been asking for and how God has been moving in different ways. Look at how people have gotten saved. And it's just encouraging and a great reminder of, wow, prayer does work. And when I take time to lift people before the Lord, there is power in that. And it's a wonderful way to demonstrate love to people that I claim to love. And so I can do this on their behalf and watch what God will do to encourage them. You know, one of the ways that Jesus shows us love is that he is continually praying for us right now as he is in heaven. Notice what Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Therefore, he being Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, Jesus is our perfect example in everything, and I love the fact that he is continually praying for you. He's continually praying for me. He's interceding on our behalf before God the Father because he loves us. And that is a great way to demonstrate love for people. But you know what? I want to share something else. Not only is prayer something that shows your love for someone, but it can also actually increase your love for someone. You know, if you're struggling with loving someone, one of the best things you can do is regularly pray for them. Because as you regularly pray for them, the Lord starts to work in you. You know, one of the biggest things that I've noted about prayer is oftentimes when we pray, we're thinking that God's going to work in all these other people's lives, which he does. But the life he works in the most when you pray is your own. And as you seek to pray for someone, maybe someone that's very difficult in your life, someone that you struggle with, and you're sincerely praying for them, you're praying for God's blessing upon them, you're praying that God would do great works in their life, you're praying that God would change them, all of a sudden, 
you start to change. Your heart for them starts to change. Your love for them starts to change. There's a change in you as you sincerely, continually lift up someone else in prayer. And so prayer is not only a demonstration of your love for someone, but it's also a tool in which you can use to increase your love. So if you are struggling with loving someone, you're thinking, yeah, I'm hearing all this about loving other believers in Christ. And you know what? There's a few that I really struggle loving. Well, you know what? Start praying for them and watch what God will do to change your heart for them and encourage you to love them more. The 11th way that Paul challenges us to love other believers is to distribute to the needs of the saints. You know, this Greek word translated distribute means much more than just to give something out. It means to contribute together, to partner with others, and share what each one has to fellowship. So this Greek word isn't just speaking of, you know what, I have something, I'm just going to hand it out to people. It's more of a a unity, uh, 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 this group of people that are willing to share what they have with one another in fellowship with one another, seeking to meet each other's needs so that everyone hopefully can have their needs met by the group as a whole. So when Paul says distribute to the needs of the saints, he's speaking of an intimate fellowship. You have that connection, that desire to really, you know, share with and minister to one another in this way. And this is, once again, a great way to demonstrate love to other believers. When you see a believer that has a need and you can meet that need, what a great way to love them by actually seeking to meet that need on their behalf. You know, this is what we see with the early church. As the early church was first established, this type of love, this love where people were sharing with one another, had this fellowship with one another, seeking to meet the needs of one another, is clearly something that took place. We see this in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35 says this, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, nor was there anyone among whom lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distribute to each one as anyone had need. Notice this, that the physical needs of the early church were great because there were so many people who were not from Jerusalem that are all of a sudden there and getting saved and they have no home, they have no you know, job, they have no income. And all of a sudden the other believers who lived there said, you know, we are going to help meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ and show them love in this way. You know, each one of us, we have time. We have talents, we have treasures that God has given to us that he's saying, you know what? Why don't you look and see how you can use your time or your talents or your treasures to meet the needs of other believers in the body of Christ? Now, something practical, in order to meet the need of another person, you got to know them. Because if you don't know them, you're not going to know their need. There there comes that intimacy, that fellowship that's so essential so that you can actually be in a relationship with someone and then naturally find out, oh, yeah, you have this need and you know what? I have what can meet that need. Or I can give you my time if you need it. I can give you a talent that I have. I can give to you of treasures that I have to help you within this. But you got to, one, spend time with each other. But also, and I know maybe 
especially for us as men, we have to be willing to say, yes, I have a need. You know, oftentimes we just want to think, I can take care of myself, I'll do it on my own. But, you know, to be, you know, just, hey, you know what? Yes, there are needs in my life that I'm willing to make known because I want the body of Christ to function the way that it's designed to, that everyone has different gifts and different things, and that we can share our needs with one another and seek to meet each other's needs as the Lord leads and as the Lord gives us the ability to do that. William Barclay said this, We are to share with those in need. In a world bent on getting, the Christian is bent on giving because he knows that what we keep, we lose, and what we give, we have. Jesus said something that for many of us, and especially this world, it's very contrary to the world's view of thinking. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. You know, the world definitely says it's more blessed to receive than to give. And we're kind of in this materialistic world that we live in. It's hard for us oftentimes to believe the truth of what Jesus says. You know what? It's actually more of a blessing to give than to get. And we should have that mindset of what is it that I can offer? How can I give to bless someone else and show them love through distributing what I have to them? The twelfth practical way that Paul challenges us to love other believers is to be given to hospitality. This word translated to be given to is quite an interesting word. It means to follow, to press hard after, to pursue and chase down in order to lay hold of. It was most often used in pursuit of a criminal, that you would chase them down, you would pursue them until you lay hold of it. You would give it your all in order to catch them. Well, Paul now is using this, but he's using it towards something good, that you're pursuing that you're doing all you can to lay hold of hospitality. Now, this word hospitality, there's probably about three or four different Greek words that you see translated that way into the English language, into the Bible. And this one's interesting because it's very specific of what Paul is addressing. And this is really to be willing to demonstrate love, kindness, and friendliness to strangers. Now, there's other portions of the Bible that speak of hospitality, and it's, and it's dealing with pretty much anyone to kind of open your home and, and to be hospitable. But this word is specifically focused on loving strangers, being willing to do this loving act towards someone that you don't know, towards someone that you just met. And this is a challenge for us because our natural inclination is to love those that we already have relationships with. Love those that we know well. Love those that, hey, yeah, yeah, we come to church and we have the people that we've known for a while. And, and those are the easier people to love and to demonstrate love to. And then all of a sudden, there's a new person. It's a stranger to us. You know, we've never met them before. And here the challenge for Paul is to be willing to show love towards those people. Be willing to make them feel welcome. Be willing to say, hey, why don't you come over to my home? Why don't we go do something as opposed to just, well, I'm just going to hang out with those that I'm already comfortable with, that I already have relationships with. Sorry, you're not in that category, so you can just stand over there by yourself. And sadly, in a lot of churches, people come for the very first time, no one talks to them. No one shows them love. No one welcomes them. It's just a sad reality of everyone's kind of in their own little cliques, and here's this new person, and it's like, well, I guess no one here really wants a relationship with me. But Paul's challenge is, hey, that for those who are strangers, we'd be willing to love them 
as well. And this is interesting as well. In Paul's time, when he wrote this letter, there weren't many hotels, there weren't many inns. And so when believers would travel what for business, travel to see family, travel for ministry as Paul did, you know, they were depending on other people to open up their home. That, you know, I got nowhere to stay. And so as I come into this town where there's little town, there's no inn, you know, if no one opens up their home, I'm sleeping out with the sheep. So, you know, there was this desire to say, hey, you know what? Be hospitable. I know you don't know them, but you know what? They're a brother and sister in Christ. Bring them in, house them, feed them, help meet their needs and show them love in that practical way. You know, Jenny and I are friends with a, a wonderful retired couple in Atlanta. And, you know, we went to their house once and they were so excited. They said, hey, we want to show you this. You know, they called it the upper room. They had an upstairs you know, room uh, with a side room and a, and a uh, bathroom. And they set it all up as a little apartment. And they would have missionaries two or three a month come there. And they would just let churches know, hey, we have a place. If you have a missionary, we want to house them. We will take care of them. We will host them. We will feed them. They have a free place to stay. And that was just their heart. We want to, most of these people were strangers to them for the first time when they met them. And they just said, you know what? We want to show love and be hospitable in this way. And I thought, what a wonderful ministry. They're now retired. And they're like, we want to use our home in this way. We're going to open it up to missionaries who come through and just bless them. Uh, And they definitely are putting into practice what Paul is sharing here. William Barclay said this, a home can never be happy when it's selfish. Christianity is the religion of the open hand, the open heart, and the open door. Is your home selfish? I think it's a great question to ask. I mean, if it's only you and your family that ever come through those doors, then you know what? We need to open our doors broader. If we're never inviting people in, if we're never really welcoming people in, if we're never trying to you know, bless people in that way, then we should have more of an open door, more of a willingness to say, you know what, I want to be hospitable and show love in that way. The 13th practical way that Paul challenges us to love other believers is to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now it gets more difficult. Some of the most difficult people to love are those who persecute us. It's not hard to love people who love you back, love people who treat you well, love people who, you know, are just great people. It's hard to love people who persecute you, love people who sin against you, love people who, you know, just are miserable to be around sometimes. And this is the challenge now of, okay, when someone is sinning against you and they are persecuting you, how do you respond? Well, Paul says, love them by blessing them, not cursing them. The Greek word here translated bless means to think and speak good of, to ask God's blessing on a thing or a person. The Greek word translated curse means to pray or wish evil or ruin towards someone or something to call down curses upon them. For anybody who's been a Christian for long enough, you realize, hey, we're all sinners in the body of Christ. And because we're all sinners in the body of Christ, you are going to encounter other believers who are going to do sinful things to you. You know, that's it. You know, if you, you, so many people get saved and they think, man, I'm always going to be treated well in the church. I'm always going to have people who are just so kind and loving because they're, you know, Christians. Well, that'd be nice if that was true, but we're all in a process of growth and we all have our own sin and our own issues. And so you will have people who persecute you. You will have people who sin against you and do things that are difficult. And now you're in a place where, okay, how am I going to respond 
when that happens? Am I going to respond in the loving way of blessing them? Or am I going to respond in the unloving way of cursing them? God wants us to have that loving response, to bless them, to think, speak, and ask for God's good for them. You know, when they want the what is bad for you, and they're showing it through their sinful actions towards you, when they want what is bad for you, you respond with what is good for them. You respond by asking God for what is good for them, which goes against our natural tendency, our natural desire, which is when someone seeks our bad, we seek their bad. When someone says something against us, we say something against them. When someone does us harm, we do harm right back. And no, I say, no, do the opposite. Instead of when they're doing something bad to you, to still seek their good, to not go and do to them what they are doing to you. Now, the unloving response is to curse them, to pray or wish evil or ruin towards them, to wish that something horrible would happen to them. If they'd done this, they deserve it. And, you know, this desire within us that, you know, or even to pray for God to do something horrible, strike them down, Lord. Curse their home, Lord. Do this or that. I mean, those are the responses that we shouldn't have. Now, you know, within us, there's a desire to think that, a desire to wish that, that's fleshly. And God is challenging us not to respond that way. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Don't render evil for evil. That's always a bad idea, and it always just adds sin to the equation. If someone sins against you and you sin against them, you just have more sin. You have more problems. You're never justified in sinning regardless of how much you've been sinned against. And we see a great example of this blessing of those who persecute in the life of Jesus. I mean, the greatest persecution that he has is at the end of his life as he's being persecuted for being innocent and sinless, and ultimately crucified and hung on a cross. And what does he say in Luke 23, 34? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. At a time where, you know what, if we were crucified, I'm sure we might be shouting out curses on people who did that to us, but Jesus is asking for their forgiveness. The only way that we can do this is to depend upon the Spirit of God. Because I know within myself there is this desire to retaliate, this desire to get revenge, this desire to get back. And if I'm not depending on the Spirit of God, trusting in the Word of God and what it says to me, then I'm going to respond in a sinful way because that is what's within me in my sinful nature. The 14th practical way Paul challenges us to love other believers is to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, when you love someone, you should be moved by what they're going through. And we have two opposite spectrums of what we go through, and Paul lists both of them. You have those who are just being blessed. And they're rejoicing for it. God has done something great for them. And they're rejoicing in that. And we should be moved in such a way to respond to their blessing by rejoicing with them. That they come to you and say, oh man, you know, the Lord has just blessed me with this wonderful new job and this great pay raise. And oh, it's so great and wonderful that, you know, oh, that's, let's celebrate. 
This is so wonderful. Praise the Lord for what he's done. Or, man, I've been sick with this disease or that illness for this amount of time, and the Lord has brought complete healing upon my life, and they share that with you. Regardless of what's going on in your life, Lord, that is wonderful. Let's rejoice over this. Let's be happy for this person, sincerely happy for God's blessing upon their life. But you know what? Sometimes we see another believer rejoicing because of something great God has done in their life. And we don't rejoice. And the reason we don't rejoice is because we love ourselves too much. You know, they share, hey, look how God has provided this wonderful new job. And our thought is, I've been praying for a new job. I would love a pay raise. God, why didn't you give this to me? Why did you give that to them over me? And instead of rejoicing with them, we're jealous. We're upset. Why would you give that person that thing and not me that blessing? And the reason we do that is because we have too much love for ourselves. We don't love them enough. I love you enough that says, you know what, even though I didn't get that blessing, I love you enough to rejoice with you that you got it. I'm thankful that you got it. Yeah, maybe I still would like that for myself as well, but it's not going to keep me from rejoicing with you. It's not going to keep me from thinking, wow, praise the Lord that you have this healing or this new job or whatever blessing it may be. Irish novelist and playwright Samuel Beckett, he received great recognition for his writing. His wife, whose name was Susan, she was also a writer, but not nearly as recognized as her husband. And because of her lack of recognition, Susan started to grow jealous of all the recognition that her husband received for his writing. And one day in 1969, Susan answered the telephone and listened for a moment, spoke briefly, and then hung up. She turned to her husband Samuel and with an angry look, she said, what a catastrophe. And he's thinking like, what happened? You know, someone died. Who called? Only to find out that he had been awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. True love for her husband would have caused Susan to rejoice in the fact that her husband had been given this wonderful award for her, his writing, but her love for herself caused her to think her husband's blessing was a catastrophe. You know, this is a sad reality that we struggle with. We oftentimes aren't willing to rejoice in others' blessings because we just love ourselves too much and not them enough. So one aspect of this spectrum is to rejoice with those who rejoice, but then there's the other side of the spectrum. Not everybody's happy. Not everybody's going through wonderful blessings. Oftentimes, we have great difficulty that we're going through, and so we're full of sorrow. And so the other challenge is to weep with those who weep. When you love someone, their sadness and their difficulty that they're going through, it should move you. It should impact you. We should be moved by the sorrow of others. You know, a story is told about a little boy with a big heart and his next door neighbor, you know, an elderly man had his wife die and all these people were coming over to try to console him and share words of wisdom with him. And this little boy just came and sat in this man's lap and just cried with him. You know, and I think this is a great picture because so often that's what people need the most in the midst of tragedy. 
You know, we, we try to come with all these wise words of wisdom and, you know, try to tell them things that, you know, and many times we're trying to be helpful and sometimes we're being more hurtful than helpful. And sometimes the best thing to do is just be quiet, be with them, and be willing just to weep with them, to be willing just to cry with them and just have that moment with them. D. DeHaan wrote this, A heartfelt tear can show our love as words can never do. It says, I want to share your pain. My heart goes out to you. You know, oftentimes this is the best thing that we can do. But we need to be willing to love people enough to adjust to their mood. Sadly, we see people who are weeping. We see people who are going through difficulty. Instead of weeping with them, instead of being moved by what they're dealing with, our own love for self thinks thoughts like, I'm glad I'm not dealing with that. I'm glad that's not me. I'm glad that they have that illness, that they lost their job, that they are struggling in that way, that they lost someone they love, and I didn't. And so we're not really concerned so much about what they're going through. We're just happy that it's not us. And that's a sad reality. I know I've been guilty of it, guilty of thinking that way. And it just shows that love for self, which once again gets in the way of loving others. And even sadder, sometimes our love for self is so great that we just don't even care. It's not even so much, I'm so grateful this isn't happening to me. I just don't really care what's going on in your life. All I care about is my life. All I care about is what's going on with me. And so when we actually ask people, how are you doing? And everyone knows the response is good, whether you're doing good or not. Why? Because most people don't really want to know that you're doing bad and listen and hear what's really going on in your life. And that's kind of a sad reality for a lot of people. It's like, if I were to really say, well, actually, I'm doing bad, and let me share with you, well, I don't want to hear that. I just want to have that, you know, greeting of how are you doing, and I'm not really interested in how you're doing. I'm only interested in how I'm doing. And this is where we need to get past this reality of it's just all about me and come to a place where, no, I want to actually be concerned about other people and what they're going through and to show love to them, whether they're having a great day, a great week, rejoicing in the blessings of the Lord, or struggling greatly, weeping and in sorrow, but I'll be moved either way to come alongside of them and either rejoice with them or weep with them. You know, Jesus, he was moved by the sorrows of others. We see a great example of this in John chapter 11. Lazarus has just died. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were people that Jesus spent a lot of time with. And he goes to see the sisters who now have just lost their brother. And notice what we're told in John 11, verses 33 through 36. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have they laid him? Then they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. When Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, they're weeping, the Jews who knew Lazarus are weeping, and Jesus comes on the scene and we see him. Jesus wept. And they recognize, look at how much he loved him. They connect the two. And you know what? The, the crazy thing is, Jesus knows in a moment, I'm going to raise him to life. But yet he's moved by the sorrow of those that he loved. 
When you love someone, you should adjust to the mood that they're in. If they're rejoicing, rejoice with them. If they're weeping, weep with them. The 15th and final practical way Paul challenges us to love other believers is to be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Paul tells us to associate with the humble. Some of your translations will have something different because the Greek word translated humble means to be of low degree, of lowly condition. And so Paul says, you know what? Associate with those who are low. In society's view, in the, the view of, of what people think, that this is the lowly conditioned people. And he's also speaking of the fact that we should have a humble view of ourselves. And this is something that is so important. Because when we get prideful, when we get wise in our own eyes, as Paul says, it increases our self-love. It increases this you know, belief that we are better than others. And that ultimately hinders loving people that we feel are beneath us, the lowly. And we see that with pretty much everyone. We get to this place where our own pride elevates ourself, where we think like, well, yeah, I can love these people who are on par with me, and I'd be really happy if these people who I feel are above me would love me, but I surely aren't, I'm not going to love this group. You know, that, that group's beneath me. That, that group is too low for me to love, for me to spend time with. And so Paul's challenge is that true love is willing to associate with everyone. It doesn't show partiality, regardless of their race, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their social status, regardless of their political viewpoint, that I would say, you know what, I'm still going to be willing to love you. You're not in a category that's too low for me to demonstrate love to you. And the wonderful truth of this is that God doesn't show partiality, which is good for us. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. You know, when Jesus was here on this earth, note who he spent his time with. He was with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinful people. The lowest of the low of society are the people that Jesus loved, are the people that he invested in. And that was something the religious leaders despised. They asked him many times, why do you and your disciples eat and fellowship with these sinful people? Why? Because the religious leaders had that prideful self-love that thought, I'm better than them. I would never associate with them. I would never spend time with them. How dare you and your disciples do that? Those people are, are too low to love. Too low to spend time with. But fortunately, Jesus came for everyone. He showed love to everyone. And we should be like Jesus, being willing to love no matter what, no matter how low this person is in society's view. You know, the love that these verses are challenging us to give is really a love that is given to those who don't give anything back to you. And that's a struggle for us because the majority of our love relationships are given to people who give something back. 
you know, almost every relationship of love that we have, we're demonstrating it to someone and we get something back. Maybe it's love back from them. You know, but there's something, whether it's our spouse or our kids or our family or our friends, you know, we enjoy that time. We enjoy them. There's something that they offer to us. And so because of that, we can kind of think it's worth it. It's worth loving them because I actually get something from this. The real hard love is to say, am I willing to love someone who offers me nothing in return? And look at your own life. How many people in your life are you showing love to who offer you nothing in return? Those lowly people who have nothing to offer, you think, you know what, I'm just going to pour into them anyway. I'm going to show them love anyway. Those difficult people, those unlovable people, the ones that you know are hard, that you're saying, you know what, I'm still going to show you love because love's a choice, it's not a feeling. And I'm to demonstrate it not just to those who love me back. As Jesus says, what good is that? If you just love those who love you, even sinners do that, what we do. The true test of love is loving those who don't love you back. That's the hard thing for us. That's the challenge as we look at these things and we think, oh, I can think of people that I'd love to put these 15 things towards. Yeah, but are any of those the difficult ones? Are any of those the hard ones? Are any of those the ones that you look at and say, well, I don't even want time with them? Well, maybe those are the ones that we really should be focused on demonstrating this kind of love to. That's the kind of love that God showed us. It's the kind of love that He's called us to show to one another. So in this section here, Paul gives us 15 practical ways of how we can demonstrate love to other believers. I encourage you, go back through these verses. There are not many of them. Look at these. Think through these. Ask the Lord to really help you to put them into practice. God, show me people in my life. Show me ways in which I can take these things and actually do something with it. Don't just leave here thinking, I need to love more. Yeah, we all do. But take something from this. Be more practical. Lord, what specifically from this can I put into practice in the relationship I have with this person or that person and actually start to do this and show this kind of love for other believers? I mean, just imagine if every one of us did all 15 of these things towards one another all the time, what wonderful relationships we would have. I mean, how great that would be if we all just showed this kind of love to each other. The problem is we don't often do it. It's hard. It's a struggle. And so I want to end with one final challenge because, yes, we should do it, but we often don't do it because it's something that's very difficult for us to do. Ray Steadman gives a great challenge for what we need to do to be able to love the way we're challenged to love. He says this, True love is manifested by learning from the Word of God how you should behave in a certain situation and then depending on the Spirit of God to give you the strength to do it, moving out and doing that very thing. That is the way you love, by acting in obedience to what the Word tells you by the power of the Holy Spirit within you. Here we have two essentials. If you want to love, the first is you have to know what God says is the way in which to do it. 
And that's the starting point, because if you're just going to say, yeah, I need to love people, well, well, yeah, but how do I do that in this relationship or that relationship? Because so often as Christians, we take from the world and what they say love is and how we should demonstrate that and, and you know the levels in which we should go. And they're often just saying, oh, you've done enough. Well, that's not what God's word says. And so first and foremost, we need to have the word of God, the source of love that tells us how we should live. Start with that so you know what you should do. And then once you hear that, you're going to be like me and you're going to think, I don't know if I could do that. And that's why the second point is so vital. Now you've got to depend upon the spirit of God to enable you to do it. Because if you look at like love your enemies right away, you're thinking that's not happening. There's nothing within me to love that person. Well, that's true. There's actually nothing within you to love a lot of people. And so it's realizing, yeah, if I'm relying on myself, if I'm trusting in my own love, my own strength, my own ability to, to demonstrate love, I'll never do what God tells me to do in this. And that's why I need to realize my dependence has to be on the God of love who's given me his spirit to dwell within me. And the greatest fruit of that spirit is love. And if I depend upon him, then I can put these things into practice. And if I don't depend upon him, I'm going to see the hard way. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to be able to demonstrate this. No matter how hard I try in myself, I will always come up short. But through the power of the Spirit of God, I can do this. You can do this.